Um, okay, uh, guys, I, I'm, this might sound shocking, but uh, we're going to be we're, we're covering from Exodus 7. We're in a series in Exodus. Uh, we're covering from Exodus 7:14 all the way through chapter 10 today. You heard me correctly. Yeah, that's a lot of Bible. Deal with it. Um, no, guys, what, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at it kind of in a big picture way. Uh, so I want to make sure you can see the screen or you've got a Bible on hand because we're going to be uh, looking at the text a lot and also there'll be important things uh, up on the screen. Um, but before we get started, please pray with me. God, we pray for your help this morning in understanding your word. That as we look at your actions and history, redeeming your people, that we would see that your plan of redemption goes on still. That your concern is for us just as it was for the people of Israel. Help us to more deeply appreciate our God who redeems this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I want to show you guys something that totally captured my heart. Here we go. Yeah, not the kid, not the kid, the bass. Uh, so there was a time in my life where that there bass guitar was just about all I could think about. You see, when I was, I was uh, 11 years old, my brother got into rock and roll and therefore I did too. He got a guitar and in the same way that little brothers have to play Luigi, I got bass. Now, I come from, uh, my, my father's Jewish and old school. And so when I said, Dad, I really want a bass, he said, great, how are you going to earn enough money for it? I'm 12. He's like, you could work in my video store. But here's the thing. The, the, the idea of getting a bass and starting to play had so captivated my heart that it was all my little 12-year-old brain and heart could think about, right? Like, like the day, oh, joyful day, when I could play bass. And then, like, my whole life would change. I would be cool. Girls at school would be interested in me. And, and the whole night, it never worked. But <laughs> so I was willing to do anything. I was like, okay. Work at your video store, Dad? Sounds good. My dad had a video store at the time. Blockbuster put him out of business. And now look at them. But anyway, <laughs> I got paid all summer, $1 an hour. And they call that earning $150 the hard way. I don't know what the math on that is. I guess I had to work 150 hours over summer as a 12-year-old. That sounds about right. And so, so that fall... I had saved up enough money, I, I had hoped, and my dad took me to Jim's Music in Irvine, California. And Jim's Music was one of these, these cavernous music stores, you know, you open the doors, ah, and you walk in, and it's like the whole wall, like these, you know, two-story high walls covered in guitars. It may have been one story, I was short at the time. And, and I was like, I want a bass. And, you know, I was, uh, at the time, I really liked, you know, Metallica and Motley Crue, so I wanted a pointy one. And they were like, you can't afford a pointy one. 
how about a Squire Precision Bass, which is an excellent entry-level guitar. But this was more than a guitar for me. This was my reason for existence. So I happily forked over the $150, and I came home with that there bass. And the two of us were inseparable. I didn't know how to play it, so I just kind of like made noises on it. I'd shine it a lot. I'd sit with it, tell it how my day went. It completely satisfied my soul for two weeks. And then my soul needed something else. I was so sure that was the last thing I would ever want. But you know what happened? I got it. And then something else comes along, right? It's weird. Has that ever happened to you guys? Something, you, yeah, we could, Soji looks really cute with that bass, by the way. <laughs> that again and again, the, the claws of our heart latch on to something. And we're so sure this is going to be the last thing that I ever need, whether that's an achievement or a person or a possession or a vacation or a pleasure or a dream home or a candidate winning an election or whatever it is, we, our hearts just can't really let go. And getting that thing is always terribly disappointing. You think these guys out there winning the Super Bowl are satisfied with themselves for more than a week or two? It's always on to the next thing, on to the next thing, on to the next thing, and one is just as disappointing and unfulfilling as the last. And you have to sacrifice greatly for it, don't you? The Bible has a word for this idolatry. When our heart latches on to something that we judge to be of ultimate value, the thing that's going to make my life work, the thing that animates me, the thing that guides me, the thing that I get up in the morning for, it, it, it's, it's idolatry. And that's when you take a good thing and make it a God thing. You say to career, you say to squire bass guitar, you know, fulfill me, make me count, satisfy my soul. And it always disappoints. Now, when I say the word idolatry, a lot of the time we think of statues and the worship of a statue, right? But in the ancient world and in Exodus chapter 7, this is set in the ancient Near East, Egypt, and they had a system like this. Right, you had Ra or Bachmet or whatever these gods and goddesses were. You see, the way that you got what you wanted, you, you didn't care necessarily about Dionysius or Zeus or Poseidon. It's they controlled the things that your heart desires. Your ship coming in, success, victory in battle, all that sort of thing. And so the way that you got it, the way that you pursued it was not working at your dad's video store like it was for me. It was through making that God happy. Right? We have the same system, we just cut out the middleman. <laughs> we still worship things other than God. We still put other things in God's place that are not God. 
It's just we don't have a statue there. And so for, 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 the, for us and for the ancient people of God in Exodus chapter 7, as well as the Egyptians who are, 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 uh, are, are part of these events as well, there's a message in Exodus 7, 14 through chapter 10. These are famously the plagues where Charlton Heston starts calling down things that suck on Egypt, if you've seen <laughs> the Ten Commandments, the best part of the movie. But a, a lot of us have heard of these signs, but don't know what they mean. So what we're going to first do is just look at the text. We're going to look at the first miracle that God sends on Egypt, uh, you know, on behalf of his people. And then we're going to we're going to look at all, all of the miracles at once, okay? It's like, it's like if you want to look at something small, you need to get close. If you want to look at something really huge, like a city, you like need a helicopter. So we're first going to look at one example, and then we're going to go in the helicopter, all right? Figuratively. Don't anybody get excited. Okay, Exodus chapter 7, verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. This is he's going out to the Nile. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, that capital L-O-R-D there, that is, it's, it's clearer if you hear the, the actual Hebrew word that's there. The God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says Yahweh, by this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Behold, the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink. And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And Yahweh said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. Picture the scene real quick. You've got the palace in the background on the banks of the Nile, and Pharaoh and his entourage are coming out to do whatever they do on the Nile in the morning. We don't really know. Possibly something ceremonial, maybe just washing, maybe just enjoying the view, because it's a palace on the Nile. Who doesn't like that? So Pharaoh and his crew come out, and then Moses and Aaron are over here, thus says the Lord. He's like, oh, these guys again. <laughs> right? And he takes the staff and just... Bow, hits the water. Okay, I like to imagine it as, you know, it's just like a little spot of red. And then it starts, it, this isn't in the text, I'm making this up. But like it starts spreading, it would be cool, right? And then before you know it, the whole thing has turned to blood. It's a dramatic scene. It says, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. All the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, but they could not drink the water of the Nile. 
Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Okay, so what's going on here? Why, why is this the leadoff miracle? What is God saying to, to Pharaoh? What is, it, what is it saying to us? So every, of all of the plagues, you know, the frogs, the gnats, and everything else, there's a message. It isn't just something that sucks, even though we could all agree that your, your water source turning to blood would. But there's a message. Each miracle is either attacking an object of trust for Egyptians, or it is exposing an Egyptian deity as false, or it's requital. Requital means getting back what you gave. I will explain. The, the first miracle has all of these. The Nile. It's hard to understand much about Egypt without the Nile. The ancient civilization 101. Why did some civilizations at this time, around 1400 BC, this is the mid-Bronze Age, or late Bronze Age actually, uh, why did some of them become like Egypt with buildings and philosophy and writings and, and all of the things that we, we associate with ancient Egypt or, or Assyria at this time, also a very advanced civilization and others stayed very sort of primitive hunter-gatherer? The answer is farming. The way it works, this is going to get so boring, but pay attention. The way it works is that in order to have an advanced civilization, your farmland has to produce more food than the farmer needs. If, if you can only produce what the farmer needs and his family, that means everybody has to be a farmer. But if, the far, if a, each farmer can produce enough for two families, that means that you can have someone else on engineering, on philosophy, on administration, and, and so forth. Make sense? Egypt was by far the best farmland in the ancient world. I, I have an aerial view for you of Egypt right here. Okay, can everybody see? So most of that is just beige. This is the Sinai Pen Peninsula over here, right? This is the the, that corner of Africa, and you could see that this is the, the, the Nile Delta right here. That is all green, and all the way down it on either side of the Nile. That's the Nile, right? You, is that a stark enough picture of how good? This is today, all right? Now, the Nile not only was a great water source, but also it flooded every single year, and it would carry the dirt, the silt inside of the river, and, and, and it would lay it on top of the, the land, making the best possible dirt to grow wheat, barley, and the rest of it in. The, this fed the entire Roman Empire, just that. It was the breadbasket of the ancient world. So you understand, it, it's hard to overstate how foundational the Nile is for Egypt's power. No Nile, no power. No army, no buildings, no pyramids. Got it? They even had a god that was associated with it, Hopi. There was festivals held to this god. Right? This is the absolute foundation of Egyptian society, civilization, power, and identity. What does God do? In a moment, turns it to blood. <laughs> 
demonstrating, hey, this thing that you trust in, this thing that's a deity for you, is not what you think it is. And also, this is symbolic of the fact that they had been drowning Israelite babies in the Nile, right? The Nile turning to blood. You get that? So this is their own sin coming back on them. When we look at the rest of the plagues, they all have some... I, I have a chart. I know we all love charts. Um, okay, can we all see the chart? All right, so I'll go through a few of these until you look bored. Um, so the frogs, right? What's with the frogs? Why do the frogs go into everybody's houses? Well, there was a goddess, Baquet or Bastet, uh, who was the goddess of home and hearth and fertility. And, you know, it, said, it specifies the frogs were in everybody's beds. Guess what you're not doing when there's frogs in your bed? Fertility. Okay. Then there's gnats, and this is where the magicians, who are devotees of the goddess Isis, they, they can't reproduce that miracle. So that's another object of trust that gets exposed. Are you guys tracking so far? Okay. The flies. The flies cover the entire land, the actual dirt. This was a huge object of trust and identity for them. Then the livestock. You know, the, the livestock start dying, and remember... They were, the Israelites weren't allowed to go sacrifice to their God, so what happens? The Egyptians' sacrificial cows are killed. This one's just gangster. The boils? Um, okay. So I'm just going to cover this one because it, it might be my favorite. Uh, Moses takes dust from a kiln, and he goes into Pharaoh's presence and throws it in the air. And it spreads, and it lands on the Egyptians, and it becomes boils. Why? Do you know what a kiln was used for? It was for firing the bricks. What was the, the specified nature of Israelite slavery, the harsh labor? It was making bricks. So you see how that's just kind of cool? <laughs> the dust from the... Anyway. And then... Of course, uh, Osiris, one of the main ones, the, the crop god, gets two, uh, the hail and the locusts. And then lastly, the plague of darkness. This is a, a reason it's last, is that the king of the gods was Amun-Ra. And Pharaoh was the on-earth, uh, whatchamacallit, avatar, kind of like an avatar of Amun-Ra. Right? The, the Pharaoh was semi-divine. That was the, the God most closely associated with the Pharaoh's power. And so what does God do? He says, oh, the sun. The sun, that's the ultimate. Well, guess what? Darkness. There's even a joke in there that uh, each time, you know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh is either hardening his own heart or his heart is hardened. And with the last miracle, uh, you know, with the darkness, Pharaoh is like, Moses, all right. You can take your people, but you got to leave your livestock. And Moses is like, no deal. This is like the 10th miracle. You've, you're, you're out of chances. We're taking the livestock too. And Pharaoh's like, fine. Make sure you never see my face again, because on the day you see my face, you will surely die. Right? And Moses literally says, and you have to remember it's dark. He's like, no problem. I won't see your face again. Right? Bible joke. Um, so one question 
that people might have and that, that you know, if you've watched uh, like specials on this on National Geographic is could these plagues have been naturally caused? Does anybody care about this? Do I need to go into it? Or, okay. So could these plagues have been naturally caused? Like some of the scholars are like, well, you know, if you, there was, it was, the, the Nile was known to have some pollution or whatever, could get reddish. Um, maybe, and then the fish die, and then the, you know, the frogs come jumping out, and the frogs die, and then you know, they pile up the frogs, it says, and then the flies come, and the gnats come to eat the frogs. Darkness, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> right? uh, but uh, could they have been naturally caused? And, and this is like, for some of these scholars, it's like they want to believe, yeah, God still did it, but it's not miracles. Um, if, if, like, believing in miracles is a major barrier, like, yeah, I, I, I could believe in God, I could believe in Jesus, I'm not sure about miracles. Um, okay, like, if, you're, if that's where you are, that's, it's fine to be there. Um, I would say they wouldn't be very good signs if they were naturally caused. You know, if these were things that were known to happen, um, it would be like, uh, here's how you guys know I'm a prophet here in Denver in the middle of July. Though there be no clouds in the sky, at 3 p.m. it shall rain. <laughs> then you shall know I am a prophet. And you'd be like, it happens all the time. See, it wouldn't be a very good sign. <laughs> Though it be May 15th, you will get three inches of snow. <laughs> Those of you who just moved there, get ready. <laughs> um, so, yeah, if, if, if it's, a, it's a major barrier for belief, like, you can still be a Christian and believe these were naturally caused, um, but I would say that that's probably not the best way to understand the text, and also it would kind of undercut the idea of them being signs from God. So there's, there's three messages in, in when, when you look at the plagues as a whole. One is your idols are not worthy of worship. These things in which you place your trust are not worthy of worship. Two, that God is the actual source of those blessings. And three, that God does not take, but gives. So first of all, the idols are not worthy of worship. Now we're going to go pretty quick here. So each time God is, uh, you know, knocking out crops or the sun or whatever, it's these things they consider to be gods or ruled over by gods. And God exposes that these things they worship, these things that they sacrifice to, these things in which they place their trust are not worthy of it. They're not gods at all. They can't do the things that they're hoping they can do. It's the same for us. All of these things with which we want to replace God, whether it's career or relationship or what have you, they're not going to deliver that's their nature. There's a, um, there's a fashion influencer named Rosie. I read about this week. And uh, Rosie has, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, some odd followers, and lots and lots of cosmetic deals, beauty and fashion influencer, and uh, is even putting out a, uh, a uh, album, it turns out, and has had parts in movies and that sort of thing. And people look to her for fashion and beauty advice. And she's like, hey, use this face cream. It's awesome. Thing is, is that Rosie does not exist. She's digital. 
completely fabricated by a team of people who were making billions of dollars off of her. And so people are like, and people know it. People are like, Rosie, what should I do? You know, taking advice on face cream from someone who does not have a face. Like it's, you know what I mean? It's like following, listening, giving weight to her words, and they're not even her words. She's not worthy of following, right? She's not worthy of that devotion. In, in the same way, whatever the claws of our heart are currently attached to, and we've all got something, whether it's what you're going to do next weekend, or it's a life of recreation and pleasure, or, you know, uh, you got a dream home you're dreaming of, and, and that's the thing. That's the thing that you're holding out hope for. It's going to make it all right. It's going to make it all work. It's going to make your soul satisfied when you get that promotion, when you get that degree, when you get that level of money in the bank, when you get that car. Guys, how many times are we going to fall for the same thing? It's not worthy. It's not worthy of the worship we give it. It's not worthy of the sacrifice we make to it. It is not going to fulfill the promise that it makes to us. Idols are not worthy of our worship. Now, the other thing that, that is being communicated by these miracles is that, is that God is the source of these blessings, right? If God can turn the Nile to blood, if he can block out the sun, if he can destroy crops by, through, through, through a hailstorm or whatever, like what is, what's part of the statement that's being made there? It's that he's Lord over all this stuff, right? And this would have been news to the ancient world. They didn't believe necessarily in creator gods. Most of the, uh, most of the ancient world um, looked at creation as some sort of mistake. If you read the creation myths of the ancient world, usually it's something went wrong and the world happened and human beings were created by some sort of weird mistake. The, the scriptures are alone in saying not only are, is creation not a mistake, but there was one God who is creator and Lord over creation. And these, these very things that we divinize, these good things that we turn into God things, are actually blessings from him. That's part of the message of the text. If you were an ancient Israelite or in ancient Egypt who saw these events or were, he, were hearing the book of Exodus, right? you, you grew up with, with Amun-Ra and all the rest of it. And so the fact that there is one true God who not only is Lord over all creation, but loves you, cares for you, is redeemer, it, it reorients our relationship to these things that we place our trust in. These very blessings that we worship as gods are from the hand of God, whether that was the Nile or the crops or the sun or whatever. There's an old... Um, there's an old Puritan prayer that I've always loved this one line. It just listen, listen past the these. You have to deal with it. It says, grant me to feel thee in fire and food and every providence and to see that thy many gifts and, gifts and creatures are but thy hands and fingers taking hold of me. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a beautiful way to reorient these things that we replace God with? whether that's recreation or sex or love or food or 
work, instead of idolizing these things, instead of making them our functional gods, is to say, like, actually, you know what? This is, this is like a, a, a breadcrumb trail that leads me back. The blessing leads me to the blesser. God is the source of these blessings. But there's, there's a, a stark difference that we see between God and the, the idols, uh, these idols and, and our idols. It's that the nature of an idol that we make for ourselves is that it, it takes from us. It has an insatiable appetite for anything we'll give it. It's, um, it's like uh, the book The Giving Tree. Uh, for those of you who don't know, The Giving Tree by Shelver Silverstein is a, a beloved children's story about a narcissistic boy who kills a tree. <laughs> that, that is what happens in the book. I don't know if you've got, have you all seen The Giving Tree? Yeah, I'm sorry to ruin this one for you, but I'm also not, sorry. Uh, because I don't think Shel Silverstein understood love very well. Right? This tree loves this boy. Really, she had made an idol out of him. So when he just kind of plays in her and then abandons her and then comes back and says, give me your, give me your apples, she does because she loves it. And then give me your branches, and then give me your trunk, until she's just a stump at the end. She's dead, right? Everything that she'll give, he'll take. The tree had made an idol out of the boy. Idols require sacrifice. I have seen men sacrifice their entire family so that they can live a life of pleasure and freedom or whatever, because they had made an idol out of it. That's what I need. I need that more than I am obligated to care for my kids. I've seen people sacrifice the health of their body and every relationship in their life to achievement. Nothing wrong with work. Remember, these are good things that become gods to us. I've seen people, this is going to make some of you uncomfortable, I've seen people sacrifice real love to ideal love because the, the Hollywood version of love had become such an idol, this idealized version, that they miss out on the flesh and blood people around them. Hmm? I've seen people sacrifice their faith in Christ for the sake of their political identity because that's their idol, that's their functional God is the ascendancy of their political faction. Idols take. But when we look, if we remember that, that, uh, that God's people are just meeting God in the book of Exodus, we're meant to contrast God with how idols function. What has God done so far? He's redeeming his people. He's fighting for his people. After he sets them free from Egypt, we're getting very meta now. After he sets them free from Egypt, what does he do? He enters into relationship with them. He, he marries them. He comes to live among them. This isn't a take-take relationship, right? And you say, well, what about the sacrificial system? They're supposed to sacrifice to God. Yeah, but that was for them to deal with their sin, not, not, not so that God could just take things from them and they keep them happy. That's a whole different thing. Not only that, 
We're going to see later in the book of Exodus. His people are constantly unfaithful. And what does God do? He forgives. He forgives them again and again and again. He bears with them. God is of a completely different nature. And when, when we back up and we look at the, the whole story of Scripture, what's the whole story of Scripture? Well, the center point, the flash point is Jesus, isn't it? It's God becoming human and giving himself for you and for me, laying down his life, going through suffering, torture, and hell so that you and I could be forgiven. God, what, what we see here is that God gives instead of takes. Why, why is this important? Why is this important that, that we hear that idols aren't worthy of worship, that God is the source of, of blessing, and that God gives himself? Why is that important? It's because we need to give our worship to the God who's worthy. Instead of wasting it, instead of setting ourselves up for a life of perpetual and serial disappointment, chasing after things that are never going to satisfy the soul, we need to give our worship to the one who is worthy, and God is that worthy one. I'm actually... Um, in the middle of making a major life decision right now, it might take me some time. We just got a car. I'm very proud of it. Yes, it's 21 years old and I got it through a charity, but I'm proud of it. But my wife put a Patagonia sticker on it on the right side. It's a fish. She likes fishing. It's like fish that has mountains as a background. I'm like... Oh, gosh. we got to do something to balance this out. And so there's only like one open spot on the other side. And I was like, I've got to balance out this hippy-dippy nonsense with some, with, with, you know, like a cool band or something like that. It's got to be me, right? And, and so I only, why are you laughing? It's a serious life decision. This might take me months. And, and so I'm trying to figure out, like, who do you put there? Like, this is a huge decision for, for a music snob like myself. You know, I could go for, like, my favorite band ever, uh, Iconic. Right? There we go. That would work. Or, because I'm a music snob and I like to reference things no one else gets, I could go obscure. There we go. No one knows, see? I feel good now. Or, I could go completely egotistical. <laughs> but the point is, I get one spot and one spot only. Whoever goes there, it's not going to be the Eagles. It's got to be worthy, right? It's not just some band that I, I, I got into last week. It's got to be, be one that is worthy of that spot. You get one number one spot, folks. All the time, at the claws of our heart are attaching, placing our ultimate trust, our ultimate faith, the thing that we're looking to to make our life work, the thing that we're looking to, whether it's recreation, whether it's, whether it's work or what have you, we're replacing God there all the time. But, but we have to... I, I, I realize that for some of you guys, this is a little scary, right? Because there might be a long-standing object of trust whether that's your like you time or, or a certain 
pleasure that kind of makes your life work or, or, or whatever. You've, re- you've identified it while I've been preaching. And to let go of that, to maybe not even have it in your life anymore, or to demote it, it is quite scary. Like it, it feels like dying in some ways. What are we to do? Well, the, the, the talons of our heart are like baby grip. If you've ever had a baby hold your finger, there's no getting it off. Like you could be like, okay, baby, we're gonna, gonna, I'm gonna go to the bathroom now. Baby's not letting go. See, back there, they know what I'm talking about. You know what you have to do? You have to give the baby something much better than your finger, right? And then it lets go and grabs onto that. Our hearts work the same way. Your heart is like baby grip on something right now. And me saying, let go, you're not gonna, ever. What we need to do is instead come to the realization, reflect that that idol is not worthy. It's not gonna do the thing that you think it's gonna do. It's going to disappoint you. That instead, that very blessing that you're, you're, you're replacing God with, God is the source of that blessing. And that God, unlike whatever idol it is we've latched onto, gave himself for us. It's only when we see that Jesus Christ is more beautiful and more worthy of worship will our hearts begin to let go of an idol and grab on to Christ. We need God's help to do this. Please pray with me. God, set us free. Set us free from the endless treadmill of trusting in idols. That you would break their hold on us or our hold on them. I pray, God, that through your word and through the sacrament, through worship and community, you would change us so that our eyes are clear and we can see that you are the one who is worthy of worship, not our idols. In Jesus' name, amen.